is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. A big hello from the Fine Music Radio Studio here in Cape Town, and welcome to Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. This is your hour-long feast of book reviews and interviews to take you into lunchtime on this first Monday of May. I'm super excited about today's show. We've got a ton of incredible local fiction and non-fiction, with a few international books snuck in there too, all punctuated by the most wonderful music to wet your whistle, selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Woods. So there's not a second to spare. We have too many books and not enough time. So let's get on with the show. First up, we welcome long-standing book reviewer and interviewer extraordinaire Beryl Eichenberger for a review and an interview of an author who has made headlines in South Africa recently, as her best-selling series of books have been made into a TV series that just started running on Mnet. Sally Andrew is the author of the very popular Tani Maria murder mystery series. The fourth and latest book in the series has recently been released, and it's called The Milk Tart Murders. Beryl not only read the book and reviewed it, but she also managed to chat to the author about the book in the series. Let's start with a review. What did you think of the latest book in the series, Beryl? I take it you're a fan. Chomping away on the delicious grapefruit and chocolate fudge that arrived with my review book of The Milk Tart Murders, fourth in the Tani Maria series, I reflected on the enormous success of Sally Andrews' character. And for the uninitiated? Seriously? Tani Maria is the 50-plus Karoo agony aunt and foodie of note, residing in the small town of Ladysmith on Route 62. Journey to the unexpected, say the ads for this spectacular route. And Andrew does huge justice to this part of the country and its folk, as she describes the vistas from Maria's front stoop, her little cottage, her hens and her wisdom. Coupled with these mysteries, one can feel the specialness that lurks in this part of the world. This is yet another book ready to be gobbled up. You'll meet some old friends from previous stories, some delicious new characters and recipes. The plot will have you biting not only your fingernails, but the milk tart that simply has to accompany your reading pleasure. Recipes at the back of the book. Tani Maria is a down-to-earth country woman, someone whom all of us relate to. Not particularly glamorous, wearer of felskins and practical outfits, she is the Tani using food as a salve to all ills alongside her very practical advice, and a damn fine amateur sleuth, a sort of Carew Miss Marple. So what could Milk Tart and Marilyn Monroe possibly have in common? Both take centre stage in this delectable romp, and what a journey. It all starts with a special showing of the vintage Some Like It Hot at Oum Frick's Fantastique, whose owner is a long-time fan of the beautiful M.M. When Oum Frick is found dead on the scene, it seems like his old heart gave out. But did it? Grumpy old man that he was, frequently changing his will with the promise of treasure in his earthly belongings. The question is, who's getting it? And the vultures are circling. When a second body turns up with a note requesting Tani Maria's milk tart recipe and advice, it's up to our amateur detectives Maria and journalist colleague Jessica to unravel the mystery. 
Digging deep, they enter dangerous territory with some heart-stopping moments. Maria's relationship with policeman boyfriend Hank is taking strain, and there's lots of misunderstandings, mostly concerning food and trust. So she's having to look at herself and perhaps take her own advice. The wonderfully quirky trail embraces a children's home, unrequited love, mad aunties, tempting Karoo zoo biscuits for loosening tongues, plus a good supply of marmalade rusks for the intrepid amateur detectives. I applaud Sally Andrew for her wonderful renditions of South African characters. She has them down to a T, lovingly drawn in a voice that takes you into a community and the endearing and sometimes maddening members. There's no doubt that Andrew has her heart in the environment. It is evident in every description. We hold our breath, we laugh with the characters, we taste the food. There is an infectious humour that is as uplifting as the tasty healing recipes that go along with her advice. I mean, who would write a letter to an agony aunt about their pet goat, Mildred? And when Tani Maria responds with wisdom and empathy, well, what else would you expect? Uplifting and heartwarming as the celebration of life and love. Simply charming, with a good dollop of home-cooked wisdom, Maria will become part of your family. The Milk Tart Murders, a Tani Maria mystery, by Sally Andrew, is published by Umuzi. After reading the book for starters and watching the TV series for Main Course, Beryl had so many questions for the author Sally Andrew that we just had to get her into the studio so they could have a chat for dessert. Sally Andrew has long been a favourite author, and I have a copy of Stories for Fire Dogs at Home, which I reread the other day. But her Tani Maria series is so. Utterly South African, that it has become beloved across the world, and welcoming the fourth in the series into your home is like taking a bite out of a favourite cake. Could this be my Venus cake? And of course, you can view Sunny Maria on Sundays at eight p.m. on Mnet, and shortly to be international. So, who is Tani Maria? Well, she's a fifty-something felskunwearer, agony aunt, living in the Kleinkaroo, with a love of food and all its healing properties. With a penchant for solving murder mysteries, so I asked Sally how she emerged. Hey, Farrell, thanks for having me on Fine Music Radio. How did she emerge? Well, they had this idea special at the spa. They put a two-for-one special on Tuesdays, and I just bought their two-for-one special and gave me Tanya Maria and all the ideas related to her. Oh my goodness! I'm going to go down to spa to get some <laughs> ideas for writing. But why? I, I mean, Fire Dogs is about the earth. Why did you choose murder mysteries? I just I love reading murder mysteries. I love Agatha Christie. I find、mm. them weirdly relaxing.、Mm-hmm. I must say I do too, and and I just delve into Tani Maria. So now this is her fourth novel, and you introduced Marilyn Monroe into it. Well, Milk Tart and Marilyn Monroe, and I definitely needed to have Milk Tart when I was reading the book because I was like gobbling it up just like Milk Tart. Why <laughs> Marilyn Monroe? The Milk Tart, the recipes, everything. Let's let's have a chat about that. So the latest book is called The Milk Tart Murders, and you'll see Marilyn Monroe on the cover. So the murder takes place during the screening of a vintage movie in a antique and collectible shop in、uh-huh. Opafruk's Fantastiques in Ladysmith. So while they're watching the Marilyn Monroe movie, Opafruk dies, and that's the first murder that happens. And Opafruk really loves Marilyn Monroe and her movies, so that's the theme that is in the book. But then, of course, there's a second murder. As well,、um, yes, which we is where is, no,、uh. we won't. But we <laughs> will say that that's where the milk tart came in, and the special recipe and the advice from Tani Maria.、Yes. 
actually got a letter from a man when he was dead, actually, asking mm. for this traditional milk tart recipe. So that's how she got drawn into the murder mystery. And she still feels compelled to give him this recipe even after he's gone. So that is also a theme that goes through. I think what I love most is the way that you reflect your love of the earth in your descriptions of the town, the people, everything else. Are there people from that town who actually have inspired you? Less the people from the town. I mean, I do have the small town feel. Mm. Um, so there is the kind of flavor, but I don't base things on any people. In fact, I try and do my best not to base it. And then I often still end up using names of actual people and then I get embarrassed that it's too late because then they're in the book. So I try not to base it on people. But the relationship with the earth and the Karoo is very much real. So that is the real thing that Tanya Maria and I do share is we live just outside of town. I'm further outside than she is. In, I live on a nature reserve and she lives just outside of town. And we share the same guari trees and swallows and bookies and... And hens? Head plankies. We don't share hens because we're on a nature reserve. We're not allowed hens. <laughs> because her hens are just characters in themselves as well. Yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> um, Maria's job is as an agony aunt on the local paper. Some of the letters are simply hilarious. And the one that, of course, I absolutely loved was the goat. The goat. And the, the goat <laughs> builder. Where on earth did you find that? <laughs> <laughs> I have to sort of say, Tanya Maria, there's quite serious stuff with the murder going on and there's quite serious emotional things going on with her, especially in this book and with her readers who write in with Agony Aunt. And I feel I've got to keep having the balance with um, humor. And then just Mildred the goat just came hopping in. <laughs> she just made me <laughs> laugh out loud so much. There's a woman writing in because it's her goat's birthday. <laughs> I absolutely loved it and it does the balance there of humor and, and danger and there is a lot of danger in the book but I'm not going to talk any more about it because what I want you to do please Sally just as a fade out is won't you give us a tantalizing taste of Tani Maria and the milk tart murders and many thanks for being with us today Cool. Thanks so much, Beryl. I was told, I wanted to read you the ghost, but I think I'll read you the first page from Chapter 1 instead. Thank you. Chapter 1, The Milk Tart Murders. I woke to the sound of swallow chirps. Every spring they fly across Africa, down to the Clan Karoo. They already had one nest on my stoop, and now they built another outside my bedroom window, made of mud like my house. Hank grunted and rolled over, his arm falling across my chest. I was wearing my cotton nightie, and he was naked. I smiled at this big sleeping man with his chest-up moustache and strong arms. My smile woke him. He propped himself up on an elbow. Marry me, he said. No, I said. My late husband, Fanny, had put me off marriage for life. But maybe we could live together, I said, stroking the silver and copper hairs on his chest. You could move in here. Hank turned onto his back, put his hands behind his head and looked up at the Oregon ceiling. Maybe we should just leave things like they are, he said. Shadows fluttered across my sash window, swallows leaving the nest. Is this about Norma, I asked, all her stuff in your house? Norma was Hank's late wife. She had died a few years ago, but his home was still full of her furniture and photographs and recipe books. We could go to a movie together, he said, this afternoon. But it's Saturday. You watch rugby with Richard. Jesse convinced him to go to Opa Frick's movie, Hank said. It's a love story. Okay, I said, but first you can help me bake a lemon drizzle cake. 
After that delicious Tani Maria meal, we wash that down with Tea for Two Cha-Cha by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Next, we're joined by Vanessa Levenstein with another hot South African release that has been highly anticipated. Fanula Dowling is a phenomenal author and poet, and The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers is, I believe, her sixth novel. I've often said that Vanessa and I have quite similar taste in books, and so I have to tell you that this novel is next up on my to-read pile. I'm a big Fanula Darling fan, and I'm always sure to read everything she writes. So I'm excited to hear what you thought of it, Vanessa. The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers by Fanula Darling. Do we attract certain books into our lives like magnets because they reflect our world? Or are we perhaps more aware of our environment when reading a book that is reflected in our world? The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers by its mere title conjures up a circus. And indeed, one popped up in my neighbourhood the weekend I was reading this. However, what clearly isn't apparent from the title is something less fun. The effects war has on all young boys, hardly men. I've read all of Fanula's novels, so was particularly looking forward to this one. Definitely her most personal, in which she blends fiction and fact to write about her father, who died when the author was a young child. The book follows two timelines, that of Gina, a fictitious Fanula, who wants to be a writer. The second storyline is introduced by Gina, who writes about her father, Paddy Dowling, in order to get to know him, in order to piece together the narratives of his life, and in doing so, her own. Paddy is born in England in 1917, and has held briefly in the arms of his own father, a soldier, who was never to see his son again, as Private Dowling was killed in the war. And so the theme of an absent father is born, but so too that of strong matriarchs. Paddy's Irish grandmother, Ganda Mary, plays a significant role in the small boy's life and sets the scene for the other interesting women that follow, clearly the most exotic, being the crocodile tamer herself, Karinga. Beautiful and petulant, she plays the young Paddy much like she does her audience. Paddy's a restless soul, who seeks a world away from clerical duties in a factory. He wants to be a writer, he wants to explore, and yet, like his father before him, he ends up fighting in a war. And I have to pause here, because recently I was chatting to a friend about the horrific effects that the border war had on men we knew. They went into the army, happy, carefree, and emerged traumatized, unable to speak about what they saw and what they did. I'm not even going to start about the young boys fighting in Ukraine. Suffice to say, there are many victims of war, and the survivors all too often sink into self-destructive behavior, as Paddy did. If it sounds like this book is all too heavy, I'm doing it a disservice, because yes, it is sad, but Fanula's wit, her fine Jane Austen-like observations, shine through the bleakest moments and are best expressed in Vandy, Paddy's second love interest. She's courageous, beautiful, witty, and getting to know this matriarch, closely modelled on the actual Dowling matriarch. We understand how such a fine and fiery line of Dowling women followed, tenacious, charming, and talented. Vandy isn't the only delight. Paddy worked as a copywriter and produced iconic lines such as, Men rate Gunston great. Interestingly enough, Vanula doesn't dedicate this book to anyone, but there's a quote at the beginning by Carl Jung. The greatest tragedy of the family is the unlived lives of the parents. 
The man who loved crocodile tamers gives back to Paddy that which the war took from him, his vitality and life. Okay, now I can't wait to read it even more. Thank you, Vanessa. And now feels like a good time for a coffee break. This is The Coffee Song by Frank Sinatra, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by our favorite bookstores, Exclusive Books. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda, cause they've got to sell their quota. And the way things are, I guess they never will. They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil. No tea or tomato juice, you'll see. No potato juice. Cause the planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. A politician's daughter was accused of drinking water and was fined a great big $50 bill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. Need savor, coffee ketchup gives them flavor, coffee pickles way outsell the dill. Why they put coffee in the coffee in Brazil? No tea, uh-uh, or tomato juice. You'll see no potato juice. Cause the planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. So you'll add to the local color, serving coffee with a cruller. Dunking doesn't take a lot of skill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. Man, they got a gang of coffee in Brazil. Hey, Pedro, get the flashlight. I cannot find the sugar. Welcome back to Book Choice. We're joined now by Safra Musikanth, who is a grade 12 student at Abbott's College. Safra will be telling us about a new children's book called Wonderfully Made, written by Suanelo Saramula and published by Pan Macmillan. Wonderfully Made is a beautiful children's book written by Suanelo Saramula and illustrated by Sylvie Bosa. It describes what it means to be a brown girl growing up, and it is designed to empower the little girl reading it. The book is filled with positive affirmations that inspire young girls to be fearless and reach for their dreams. With a few sentences on each page, accompanied by vibrant and exciting imagery, it makes for an immersive and reader-friendly experience for young children. This book deserves to be read to every child, regardless of skin color. It should be on every preschool shelf and on every little girl's nightstand. I was spending some time at a school last holiday. The children were all kids of color. And the one thing that stood out to me was that every Barbie or baby doll they played with was white. Every children's book I read to them featured almost exclusively white characters. Every little girl deserves to open a book and say, hey, she looks like me. 
That's why I'm delighted to give this book to them. I know it will find a happy place in their bookshelf. My personal favorite line of this book is, brown girls are risk takers, move makers, and planet shakers. Thank you, Safra. I'm so glad you brought this book to our attention. As you may have gathered, Wonderfully Made is a book of positive affirmations for brown girls of all shades, sizes, and shapes. This book teaches girls to not only embrace, but to truly celebrate their unique appearance and talents while encouraging them to dream big and to be creative. This book is also available in Setswana, Isikosa, and Isizulu. You may have noticed that we've reviewed a number of wonderful new children's books over the last year or two on the show, and I really believe in the importance of early childhood development. I read somewhere recently that the single biggest predictor of high academic achievement is reading to children, not flashcards, not workbooks, not fancy preschools, not blinking toys or computers or cell phones, but a mom or a dad or a teacher, a relative or a friend or a gogo, taking the time every day or night or both to sit and read them wonderful books like this one. If there is a child in your life or a friend, relative or employee who has a child, please can I encourage you to browse your local exclusive books or any bookstore and take a look at the titles like this one and others we've mentioned over the last year or two. I see that this title costs about 130 rand online. I know that being read to and reading as a child is what ignited my great passion for books and that stood me throughout my life. And so buying someone a book like this or reading a book like this to a child might just help change their lives forever. Over the next few months, we will continue to look at more books like this and charities like The Bookery in Cape Town and Book Dash who do such important work with kids and books. Next up, another reader and reviewer that I always look so forward to talking books with. Beverly Roosmuller is a very impressive reader. Beverly, I know there were a couple of titles you've been reading over the last few weeks and you were torn as to which to review on the show today. So, what delicious read or reads did you decide to tell us about in the end? There's a shelf in my study devoted solely to Alan Bennett, playwright, actor, author and a national treasure in the UK. If you're as old as me, you may remember him back in the groundbreaking days of Beyond the Fringe, the Oxbridge comedy series that became an international hit and launched him, along with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, on their celebrity paths. Of that original four, only Alan Bennett is still alive, still writing plays and books, and speaking in the flat Leeds accent he never lost. The son of a working-class couple who thought the height of unattainable exoticism was a cocktail party. He's come a long way since then. This little booklet, Two Besides, is the result of COVID, or more specifically, the disastrous effect COVID had on the theatrical arts in Britain and elsewhere. As COVID closed theatres and actors lost work, the BBC contacted Nicholas Hitner, who had directed all of Bennett's plays over the last several decades, including The History Boys and The Lady in the Van, the true story of the eccentric old woman who lived in a van in Bennett's driveway for more than 15 years. As an aside, I saw Maggie Smith in this role on television just a couple of weeks ago, both she and the play as magnificent as ever. Back to the BBC, their suggestion was that Nicholas Hitner produce a new series of Talking Heads, a series of ten monologues written by Bennett and filmed for television decades before. The point being, there are monologues, and therefore with careful planning, there could be 
carefully filmed for television while respecting COVID protocols. Not only did Bennett immediately agree to the idea, but he wrote two new monologues in addition to the original series. And this is where this little book comes in. As always, the stories are mesmerizing in the intimate, domestic, bunny rabbit wearing fangs kind of way that only Bennett can deliver. The first new monologue, deceptively titled An Ordinary Woman, well delivers the curveball you never saw coming, a strategy at which Bennett is adept. Gwen is a middle-aged mom with teenage children busy about the house with ironing and school events. Her 15-year-old son is a bit troubled by an embarrassing symptom, which she deals with briskly, then realizes that her world has shifted irrevocably and without mercy. It's not possible for me to reveal any more, although I will note that those of you who had a classical education in Greek literature may know, be more prepared for what happens next. Those ancient Greeks certainly knew a thing or two about humanity. On television, and it's possible to access this new series of talking heads if you search around for it, the ordinary woman is superbly played by Sarah Lancaster, whose descent into broken despair is quietly and perfectly captured. Bennett's second new story, The Shrine, has a bite to it, as well as his characteristic unveiling of a story's second string, which makes all of his work so alluring. A further treat is the one-page monologue by Muriel, doing her makeup while fantasizing about her husband, not in a conventional way, while he's out getting his vaccine. You may remember Alan Bennett's name from his more recent bestseller, such as An Uncommon Reader, when the Queen throws Buckingham Palace into a panic as she discovers a lending library on its premises and begins to borrow books and develop ideas, the one thing she is not supposed to have. The Queen must be neutral on everything. Everyone around her is shocked, including her late husband, the Duke, who points out that she's already read a book. And yet another of my favourites of his is Smut. Once again, nothing is quite what it seems, as he digs into the genteel world of sexual adventure. Bennett is now in his late 80s, and I hope he has more writing to bless us with. Despite being a household name in Britain, he remains reclusive and modest, having turned down a bunch of honours, including a knighthood, saying he couldn't accept it because it would be a bit like having to wear a suit for the rest of his life. That's so vintage, Bennett. I've been talking about Two Besides, A Pair of Talking Heads by Alan Bennett. Trinidad, they make you feel so very glad. Calypso sing and make up rhyme, guarantee you one real good fine time. Drinking rum and Coca Cola, go down point Kumana. Both mother and daughter working for the Akidala. Oh, beat it, man, beat it. If the young comes to Trinidad, they got the young girls all going mad. Young girls say they treat them nice, make Trinidad like paradise. Drinking rum and Coca-Cola, go down point Kumana, both mother and daughter. 
back, man, it's a fact. In old Trinidad, I also fear the situation is mighty queer. Like the Yankee girls, the natives swoon when she heard her bingo croon, drinking rum and Coca-Cola. Go down, point to mama, both mother and daughter working for the Yankee dollar. Out on Manzanella Beach, G.I. romance with native peach. All night long make tropic love, the next day sitting hot sun and cool off drinking rum and Coca-Cola. Go down Point Kumala, both mother and daughter working for the Yankee dollar. It's a fact, man, it's a fact, rum and Coca-Cola. We thought it time for a slightly stiffer drink after that, so that was Rum and Coca-Cola by the Andrews Sisters. Hopefully, all the music in the show today is quenching your thirst for some great tunes. We head now into our monthly Nature Book Slot, which is hosted by John Hanks. This month, the book John had planned to review is called Know Them By Their Fruit, and it's by A.T. Ankiewicz. But at some point, John reached out to me to tell me that it's a superb production with a very interesting story linked to its genesis. And so John suggested that the best person to discuss the book would be Professor Eugene Mull, who wrote the foreword for the book, which sounded like a brilliant plan to me. So a huge welcome to the show, John Hanks and Professor Mull. The Nobel Prize winner, Albert Schweitzer, once wrote, Never say there's nothing beautiful in the world anymore. There's always something to make you wonder in the shape of a tree, the trembling of a leaf, end quote. Now, if you share Schweitzer's passion for trees, then you must get a copy of the beautifully illustrated book by Trevor Ankovich entitled Know Them by Their Fruit, a guide to identifying South African trees, with a foreword by Professor Eugene Moll. And I've asked Professor Moll to come on the programme to talk about the novel approach used by the author, which really is very interesting. But first, tell us what do you know about Trevor, the author? Well, hello, John, and, and whoever's listening. I met Trevor three or four years ago when I was a guide on an international dendrological society, big five Southern African tour of trees. And he was our guide in, in South Africa. And we headed off immediately. He's got a very nice repertoire. He's a trained forester from Sarsfeld, and then he's done many things. And he's been in education for a while, now retired and a guide. And with him, he brought a copy, just a, an abbreviated copy of a book that he was working on. And this intrigued me, and I found it really interesting. And, and so did the international participants think it was an excellent book. So he's really an interesting character. I mean, he's, as a retired forester, he's one of those chaps I like who never seems to retire. I always like the, the quote, retirement right. is And I think he's certainly in that not going to be a sissy. He's working hard. But Eugene, this book took some 40 years to put together. Yes, correct. He, he was working in Pretoria in what is now Sandy for a while. 
and he had difficulty identifying trees, which are difficult to identify by leaf, because most of the books have leaf characters that vegetative characters that you can identify trees and the keys are very difficult and people battle and he found it was easy if he could catch a fruit then he could see what the tree was and he also observed that not only ripe fruits on the tree or green fruits on the tree but you could scuffle around under the leaves under the tree and possibly find an old fruit so fruits are available for quite a long time in the year And so he just set about this project of a twig with a fruit on it. And then underneath that twig in the litter, what a dead fruit or a decomposing fruit would look like. And he used these, I think, 381 species he's illustrated. And he used them and he compiled a book with a key. And the key is based on fruit size. um, Say, And he's used common fruits that one can see at home like a gem squash, a peach, a cherry, or a peppercorn for different sizes. And then, of course, their pods. He's devised an ingenious key for what is really a very unique book. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, in many ways, it's uh, quite unique because leaves are so variable and many of the um, existing sites depend on leaves. And you can have variation depending on where the tree is growing and that surely has been a limitation of um, some of the existing field guides correct it's exactly a problem in as you said trees are extremely variable in actual fact i'm working on a book on the trees of kruger park at the moment with a bunch of people who are asking me incredibly difficult questions because i thought i knew how to identify trees and then you get these questions from financiers and and others who haven't a clue about tree identification and that challenges you so getting it right is not easy and um and of course trevor in his book 381 species he started off looking at what were really the big trees in south africa but eventually he did do a few of the kind of smaller trees because we have about something over a thousand tree species in south africa but Amongst those, of course, are some small shrubs and a lot of woody climbers. So they are not really trees in the sort of standard sense of the word, but he's picked probably the most prominent big trees in the country to illustrate. And and he's done it over, as you said, over 40 years. He's quietly gone about finding the material. And, and he's got lovely stories about you know, when he collected something somewhere in the bush on a tour He's had to then keep, make a quick pencil sketch late at night and then take it back home where he can do the illustrations more fully. So the illustrations, I think, are superb. And it's, uh, I gather the, the originals of these have been sold to raise money for the Botanical Society. Yes, he, he's a very interesting man. He, is, he, he was so delighted that someone was going to publish his book, which is kind of a swan song, if you wish. Hopefully not. Hopefully he'll keep going. But he donated all the illustrations and the manuscript and a friend of his made a a beautiful box out of indigenous woods he's a joiner by trade and he's presented all of these to the botanical society of south africa and he is taking no royalties he just for himself he got 10 copies of the book so he could give them to friends and relatives and so and this is his pride and joy when i speak to him he just every time i've mentioned the book I can't see his face because we're WhatsApping, but I can 
I know his face is lighting up with absolute joy that this book is published and out there. And, and it's been getting some good reviews too. And, and I'm not surprised. I think it's a super interesting book that's different. There is no other book globally that concentrates on trees and the identification using just fruits. And in this way, his book is unique. And that was confirmed by some really big international dendrologists who belong to this International Dendrological Society. So, um, yeah, it's an amazing first. And we in South Africa do some amazing firsts when it comes to plant books. Well, I think field guides, actually, we must lead the world in terms of the quality of the field guides that we produce um, on the clinical side, as you mentioned, uh, um, some excellent publications. And on this program, we've been reviewing some of the field guides for the um, mammals and other vertebrates, which really are in a class of their own. But do you think um, his approach might stimulate other people to try using fruits and doing the same approach? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's a good question, John. I'm not really sure. I think that the traditionalists and using leaves, essentially, and bark and other vegetative characteristics will still predominate. I mean, I know that our book in the Kruger Park that we're working on with 550-odd species, I think it, the number now stands at, it's going to be photographic, but photographs of just the diagnostic features of the plant. Yeah. Yes, I think that's true. What I like about this, too, is, is the illustrations on the pages of the fruit um, once they fall into the ground and they start decaying, because sometimes you might come across a tree where it's not fruiting any longer, but they're the fruits, the old fruits lying on the ground and decaying. And in certain cases, you can pick these up and really help with identification. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that, that struck me with the book when, when I was, I mean, I went through the book with a fine tooth comb as well, just to ensure that, that all the identifications were accurate and the, and the text was accurate. Not that it needed a lot of correction, but it's, and I found it absolutely a fun thing to do. I really enjoyed it. But when I looked at the book, I did discuss with Chicano Media, who who published the book, maybe, and with with Trevor, to change the order in which the the plants are appear in the book. Because in the beginning, he's gone with the, the plants with the, which have tiny fruits, and those illustrations are not his the most eye catching, the most beautiful. If you go towards the back of the book where he's done plants that have got winged fruits or pods or bigger fruits like Rothmania capensis, for example, you know, the, the Cape gardenia. I mean, those illustrations are superb, you know, because the fruit is, is a much bolder presentation on the page. And I think that that's where, so if people pick the book up and they start looking at the front of the book, it looks less interesting to some extent that when you go right into the book and page through it in greater depth, you get a much better impression of how excellent this book really is. And it's, yeah. And I must say, it's caught the eyes of, of a surprising different kind of, of buyer. I think that a lot of the people who've bought this book have bought it because it's just its simple elegance and beauty when it's in presentation and because it's something that's so different when you come to identifying trees. And in that way, I mean, he's, it's amazing. I mean, you know, he had this idea, as, as we said, 40 years ago, and it came to fruition. No pun intended there, but I'm honored to have been involved in his book. Really, I really am, because it's, a, it's unique and it's different and it's refreshing 
and it's beautiful, as you've said. Well, I think what you said, I'm sure a lot of people are going to rush out and buy a copy. I hope so. I'm just looking at what you're talking about, uh, the illustration of the Cape Chestnut, for example. And you perhaps appreciate when you see how beautifully this is done, why nobody else has taken this on. Because just to do that one plate alone, <laughs> the amount of work that went into that is considerable. And then you look in the opposite pages, some very intricate uh, um, illustrations. In contrast to the earlier ones, and I think it's probably easier to do the earlier ones because they're in the category of these small peppercorn-sized fruits, which are easy to do with not much colouring. But uh, as you get on in the book, wow, there are some really stunning pictures there. One last question. He's illustrated, as you mentioned, 381 species, and yet we have well over 1,000, I think, and something 700 species of trees in the country. Does he have any plans to extend the book to cover more in the future, do you know? Oh, he would love to, John, but I'm, I'm not sure. You know, one of the problems with books that are such niche books like this is that is to get someone to publish them. I struggled. I struggled to convince the Botanical Society that they should take this project on because it, they didn't see that it, it was going to cost a lot of money, and then would they get that money back, and would they make a small profit on the book from sales? And that's the problem with many of our natural history books. You know, you will know better than many that bird books sell thousands of copies. Plant books, by comparison, sell about 1% of what bird books sell. I think it's 1% or 5%. It's a very small percentage. So, And plant books take a lot of work. I know about it because I've done a few. And, um, well, they certainly do. And I think this book is really going to be an exception. I think it's going to be greatly appreciated by all who use it. And if you love trees, please do not hesitate to go and get a copy. Eugene, thank you very much for coming on the program. I'm going to repeat the title of the book again. It's Know Them by Their Fruit, A Guide to Identifying South African Trees. It's published by Jakarta Media, Auckland Park, in partnership with the Botanical Society of South Africa, and it sells for 350 rand. As I went a-walking on Kilgara Mountain, I spied Colonel Pepper and his money he was counting. I rattled out my pistols and I drew off my sabre, grind sand and deliver, for I am a bold deceiver, mushering and down why call it daddy oh? Why call it daddy oh? There's whiskey in the jar. The gold and silver coins, they look so bright and shiny. Oh, I took them home straight away and I gave them to my Molly. She vowed and she promised that she never would deceive me. But the devil's in the women, boy, you never can believe them. Mushering and down. Why call it daddy oh? Why call it daddy oh? There's whiskey in the jar. But when I awoke, between six and seven, the guards were all around me in numbers odd and even. I reached for my pistols, but alas, I was mistaken. My pistols had been fired, and the prisoner I was taken. Mushering and turned up. Why call it daddy oh? Why call it daddy oh? There's whiskey in the jar. They put me in the jail without judge or right for robbing Colonel Pepper. So I knocked the sentry down and bad forward to the jail in Schweiger town. Mushering and down. Whack, fall the daddy-o. Whack, fall the daddy-o. The 
In fishing and in bowling, no others take delight in their carriages a rolling. But I take delight in the juice of the barley and cotton pretty girls till the morning so early. Mush a ring and them Whack, fall a daddy whack, fall a daddy There's whiskey in the jar. Mush a ring and them That was Whiskey in the Jar by The Seekers here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And I'm proud to be your monthly host, Paige Nick. For our final segment, I welcome Melvin Minar, who always so eloquently brings the books he reviews to life. Today, he'll be telling us about Edmund White's latest called A Previous Life. There's an amusing moment on page 178 in this novel where a throwaway line suggests that before he dies, Edmund White might be up for the Nobel Prize in Literature. The now 82-year-old White, of course, is the writer behind those words, put forward by the novel's protagonists. It's all part of the cunning metafictional game that he had contrived for his latest very jolly book, enigmatically named A Previous Life. It is set in 2050 and subtitled Another Posthumous Novel. It's all fun and funny, of course, but if White ever should be up for the Nobel, it would be for his pioneering pursuit of literally legitimacy for, let us say, a life queerly lived. He pushed the authenticity and power, if those are the right words, of the LGBTQI plus matrix into the mainstream of serious literature. And he did so with elegant and witty prose that would easily pierce resistance of any hard-hearted phobic reader. Ever since the successful charm of a boy's own story, his third novel published in 1982, after a debut a decade earlier with Forgetting Eleanor, White unveiled and explored a world outside of the straight orthodoxy. His non-fiction collaboration with Charles Silverstein, The Joys of Gay Sex in 1977, made it clear there would be no prudish delicacy. Ever since, now over 15 novels, three major biographies, plenty of mesmerizing non-fiction, plays and dashing personal memoirs, the aging writer-workaholic has wielded persuasive power in prose. Those are words that run comfortably, elegantly, and so readable. Even though jolts of calling a spade a spade in matters of sex and its outrages may prick the reader's imagination rather boldly. It is the vibrancy of the personal that propel White's writings, a life lived, observed, written about, and then some literary games and tricks. A previous life seems to pull together much of the productive and sometimes groundbreaking career together with lavish but entertaining indulgence. Not all critics have liked it, but White fans would by now know the lay of his land. I thoroughly enjoyed it, much like you let the old master have his way with words and thoughts. The structure is part of the pleasure. Set in 30 years from the present, a couple, Ruggiero and his wife Constance, is locked down in a ski resort chalet and starts telling each other their life's love and sex encounters. The aim of which is to deepen their bond through honesty despite large age and cultural differences. He is a Sicilian aristocrat musician, age 70, she a 30-year-old dark American and a failed writer. He is vigorously bisexual. She too had indulged otherwise, but for now their love is committed, until the affair that Ruggiero had years earlier with a queer writer named Edmund White comes into play. 
things unravel, fall apart and spin out to a gloomy finality. Love, life, experience, lost, remembered, celebrated. With referential whiffs to the famous plays La Ronde and Les Liaisons Dangereuses, White's late career literary game, also somewhat of a freewheeling contemplation on and of old age, has a gripping melancholic charm, even despite or because of all the dirty talk. You like it or hate it. And lastly, we finish off with another great new local release. Tell us all about it, Anthony Frijon. Think back to 1994. It was the new South Africa. We finally had a president we could all be proud of. This was the birth of the Rainbow Nation. The Springboks won the Rugby World Cup at a packed-out Ellis Park, with the predominantly white crowd chanting, Nelson, Nelson, as our president, wearing a Springbok rugby jersey, presented the Webb Ellis Trophy to Francois Pinard. Briefly, we were the Rainbow Nation. Unlike so many heads of state in Africa, Mandela retired after one term, followed by Thabo Mbeki, and slowly the colours of the Rainbow Nation started to fade. Mbeki was an AIDS denialist, vilifying whites generally, blaming the West for inventing the AIDS epidemic as a hoax to insult black people. When Mbeki was pushed out of office by the ANC to be replaced by Jacob Zuma, the last of the colours of the Rainbow Nation faded away completely. Ten years of state capture followed, bringing with it billions of rand stolen, lost through negligence, state enterprises effectively destroyed, pandemic corruption. Think SAA, Praza, Danel, Eskom, and too many others, who all used to function efficiently and profitably, one in particular is the South African Revenue Service, SARS, once regarded as one of the top, the very best revenue collection agencies internationally. SARS and its then-commissioner, Ivan Pillay, are the focus in The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pillay, written by Dutch journalist Evelyn Groenink a journalist who was deeply involved in the anti-apartheid movement in the Netherlands, where she met a young Indian man from Durban, Ivan Pillay, a member of the ANC, a committed member of the struggle against apartheid. This is a well-written book, a very personal account, as Miss Hrunink became Mrs. Pillay. My reactions varied from angry to dispirited, reading of the shameless thievery that took place at the expense of the very people government is supposed to help and care for. To borrow part of a line from the film Casablanca, the usual gang of suspects keep coming up, which begs the question, when are any of them going to be brought before the courts? Read this excellent book. You'll recognize them all. Ex-President Zuma continually demands his day in court and then tries everything to avoid that day. Strange, that. Then we arrive at the rogue part of the title. A unit was set up to investigate the big tax dodgers, evaders, the tobacco industry for one, and that would make an interesting book. The pro-Zuma group, beneficiaries, of course, of corruption, mounted a campaign of lies and disinformation to protect themselves. Zuma's agents were planted everywhere. 
The SABC, quite naturally, followed the Zuma lead. The Sunday Times was sucked into the stench of state capture, fed by journalists who, it transpired, had agendas of their own. It must be said that the Sunday Times apologized for falling for the rogue unit lies and disinformation. To quote Ivan Pillay, Populist politicians don't fear crooks. They welcome them. If you're interested in South African politics, The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pillay, written by Dutch journalist Evelyn Groenink, published by Jakarna Media, is a must-read. And that so neatly brings us towards the end of our show this month. We've had such a glorious mix of local and international, and a good mix of drinks too, thanks to our music maestros Rick and Dave. Mwandi Lobi and Ewan Inglis undertook the massive task of compiling our show this month, and we really couldn't do this without their hard work. We also couldn't do this without our wonderful sponsors, Exclusive Books, who back us every month and for whom we are so lucky and grateful to partner. And then there are our brilliant reviewers, who show up every month with books on their mind, excited to help us all choose the next edition to our ever-heaving-to-read piles. And of course, you, our listener, there would be no show without the readers. I recently met a listener of the show, and it meant so much to me. Often I just speak into a microphone, and I'm not even sure anyone's listening. So to hear that there are other listeners out there listening in and taking notes of books to read is really a great joy. If you missed any of the reviews or titles in today's show, the podcast of the show will be loaded onto fmr.co.za shortly. And with that, we're playing out with One for the Road. This is the Champagne Polka by the André Roux Orchestra. See you again on the first Monday in June. Happy reading from me, your host, Paige Nick.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FM.